Lord, we just ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and show us what you would want us to see from this section of scripture and let your Holy Spirit be with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Acts chapter 20. We're going to be continuing at verse 22. Thus far in this chapter, we had Eutychus fall out of the third story window and die and get healed uh, on an all-night uh, Bible study. We have Paul basically... Uh, kind of, I like to call it, making a farewell, farewell tour. He's going around and visiting all of the churches that he established and set up. And he's uh, going through. His goal is to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And when he starts it, that means he had about 50 days to get there. And we left off with him saying that he has been honest with everybody and had not cheated anybody. So... Starting out on uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Holy of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of grace of God. And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure of the blood of all men. I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Wherefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn you, one, every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were, writ were with me. I have shown you the things that are so laboring you ought to support the weak and remember the words of the Lord, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had spoken, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he had spoke that they should not see his face any more, and they accompanied him to the ship. The other thing I forgot to mention, that these, these were the, the leaders of Ephesus that had come down. We, we talked about that. He didn't want to go to Ephesus because he knew if he went to Ephesus, he'd get stuck there or somebody would try to get him. So he called the leaders to him. So we want to set that part of the stage. Uh, verse 22 says, And Paul says, Behold, I am bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not, not knowing what shall befall me there. He had this urgency. He knew in his heart that he had to go to Jerusalem. I don't know if anybody's ever been there where they know that God has just said, you need to be somewhere. Uh, and no matter what you do, no matter what obstacles you hit, you're going to get there. And this is where Paul's at. He just knows that he has to go to Jerusalem. And then he gets something that kind of interests me in verse 24. Uh, excuse me, in verse 23. Save that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide, abide there for me. Right? And this is something that kind of makes me wonder what was happening. Paul says, I am determined to go to Jerusalem. And he goes, in every town I go in, you get, the Spirit is communicating from you that I'm going to have bonds and affliction. I'm going to be arrested in Jerusalem. Now, myself, if I went every church that I went to and they told me that I shouldn't be going someplace and I knew that they were holy, righteous people, not just, you know, not just saying, you know, I don't want to miss you, I'd have to take some... some uh, notice of what they were saying and there's some controversy and I kind of agree with this was Paul being headstrong and saying I'm going to Jerusalem no matter what because that's where I want to go in spite of everything that God was 
you know, apparently telling him? Or was this some kind of challenge to see if God would be, if he would be faithful to God and his calling? And I don't have an answer. I know that when he got there, he was arrested, just like everybody told him. And, you know, this is something that I'm not sure. I do not understand which way this, was, this way was to go. Knowing the way Paul was, I think he was being headstrong. And God was trying to say, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. And he's going, well, I'm going anyway. And we've all been there where we decided we're going to do something anyway, even though every message that we hear, every, everything that people are saying to us is saying, don't go. We're bound, determined to get into something. And I don't know which this is for Paul. There's no clear indication. We just know that everywhere he goes, he says it. I keep getting told I'm going to be arrested and, and deal with affliction. Now, Paul also understands that everywhere he has been <laughs> has been arrested and had, had affliction. So, you know, there, there could be this idea that, well, what's new? You know, you're telling me I'm going to go get arrested in Jerusalem. So what's new? Uh, and... I don't know the answer to this. I just, every time I read this chapter, I kind of go, Paul, what, what were you thinking? You know, God, what were you trying to say in this? And uh, Paul, were you being stubborn or was God just trying to see if you were going to go where you're supposed to go? Say that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city saying that bonds and affliction abide me. He's, he's admitting that the Holy Spirit's telling him he's going to be arrested. Yeah. Now, it may be that he had already been told that, and God says, I'm, you're going to go, I want you to go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. And he's going, well, you all are just telling me what I already know. I don't, we don't know for sure what's going on here. Everybody's trying to tell him, stay away from Jerusalem. Now, he has this desire. He's, from the very beginning, he wanted to preach to, uh, to the Caesar. So maybe he just figures this is the way I'm going to go to talk to Caesar. I'm going to get the final arrest where I'm going to be killed, killed and I'll get to appeal to Caesar and eventually get to... We don't know. We do know that he appeals to Caesar. And as we get to that section, when he appeals to Caesar, Augustus tells him, well, we were going to free you, but now that you've appealed to Caesar, we're bound by the, by the rules to, to send you to Caesar. So we don't know. And I don't know again... Is he just being determined and everybody's reminding him? Or is he being disobedient and saying, I'm going to, to Jerusalem? And I don't know. I've, I've looked at this each time I read this section and go, I don't know what Paul was doing. I don't know if he was being obedient or being disobedient. And you know, I think God keeps it to us because there are times when God will put blocks in our way to see if we're going to be obedient. You know, when we're told to do something, will we be obedient to what he's to we're told to do? And this is argued both ways. If you read commentaries, you'll, they'll, they'll argue it both ways on the commentaries. And I'm not sure where I stand on it. Because there's nothing in there, there's nothing in here enough to tell me. It's just questioned. You know, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get arrested. And all of you are telling me that. They're looking at it, Paul, why, why are you going to Jerusalem? You're going to be arrested and, and, and punished in Jerusalem. Maybe he thought that it would be like every other city that he'd get out of it. I don't know. And there's nothing in here that's going to tell us other than he keeps going everywhere and they keep telling him you're going to be, you're going to be arrested. You know, you're going to be arrested. And like I say, he might just be thinking, so what's new? You know, you know, everywhere he goes, he gets arrested eventually or driven out of town or, or beat. So he's, he may be just saying, so what's new? You know, tell me something I don't know already. I don't know. Well, and he admits that it's the Holy Spirit telling him he's going to be bound, bound, in, bound in, uh, and beat. But shouldn't you listen to the Holy Spirit when it talks to you? None of them said, don't go. If you read these things, none of them say, there's two instances where they well, talk to him. None of them say, don't go. They tell him what's going to happen if he goes. And like I say, when you look at that, it's like, okay, well, so what's new? 
I've gone to Ephesus. I got, I got driven out. People wanted to kill me. I got beat. I went, to, I went to Philippi. I got beat and I got thrown into jail. I went to Corinth and I got eventually chased out of town. You know. So in Paul's mind, it may be, okay, this is just another place I'm going to go and have what's always happened because none of them tell him the Holy Spirit says don't go. They all just say when you, if you, when you get there, you're going to be arrested. And so they're, they're indicating that in, from their point of view, they don't want him to go. And we don't know on this. And he's admitting that the Holy Spirit is telling them that he's going to be arrested. But as they say, you know, Paul is a little headstrong. (laughs) You you read his life and when he decides to do something, he does it. Whether it's good or not, we're never really told. But that is also why he is as bold as he is. And he's still going. And he's still going. He's going. And like I say, he's headstrong. Yeah, I'm going to get beat. I'm going to get beat. I'll be arrested. I'll get beat. I'll get. I'll be. I'll. I'll, I'll get out again, like I've done the other places. Uh, you know, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and when he, when he was actively going against the church, he was very headstrong and and attacked the church and was decimating the church. God, God saved him and told him that part of, his, part of it was that he was going to have a hard time everywhere he went, and he had a hard time everywhere he went. So these guys telling him, you're going to have a hard time when you get to Jerusalem, would be like, okay, so what's new? You know, you're just telling me what I already know. Uh, I don't know. But when he says, everyone is telling me this, that tends to make me think, you know, like I said, if I went to different churches and everybody, you know, all the, all the people in the churches were saying, you know, the same thing. I would think twice. I would have to be thinking, you know, God, am I really supposed to go there? Or are you really talking to, you know, are you talking to me or am I just wanting to do this? And this can be a big deal. When, you're, you know, when you come to a place where a decision has to be made and you're seeking counsel, it gets really hard when the counsel is all over the place. Uh, when we were deciding to move to Arizona, I knew God wanted me in Arizona. I knew that God wanted me in Arizona, and yet much of the counsel I was getting is don't go to Arizona. Okay. Paul. Uh, in that case, I kind of felt like Paul. Like Everybody's saying no, and I know what God wants me to do. And now nobody said the Holy Spirit or they prophesied, but they were talking as if they were good, giving good counsel. And... You know, and it was one of those hard decisions. Do you, you know, and it, had to, it did put a check in me. God is what they're saying correct. Now, personally, I did not want to come to Arizona. At the time, I was a computer programmer, and Arizona is the backwater of computer programming and still is. And I'm going, what am I going to do for a living, God? You know, I'm a programmer, and you know, I wasn't moving to Phoenix where they might have a shot at a job, and I wasn't going to Vegas where there might be a shot at a job. And I'm going, God, I just don't know what's going to happen. You know, uh, but I knew that I was supposed to be here. You know, so sometimes it could be that it's just that bold. Paul says, I know, what I'm, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I know you all are going to miss me, and you guys keep telling me what I already know, that I'm going to, to uh, be arrested and, and, and beat. And it also could be what's new. Like I say, what's new? Everywhere he's gone, he's been beat <laughs> and arrested. So it's not... It's not Nothing new to him. So you knew it like he knew it. Huh? You knew it like he knew it? I don't know if he knew it or not. I'm just saying from when I went through this, I knew where I was supposed to be. I find that like when I do things, sometimes I made the decisions I rarely ask. Like moving there was not a a decision I asked about. I just came up with a plan and... I did that too many times in my younger days. I've gotten much better about asking God. I, I made lots and lots of mistakes doing plans on my own. <laughs> I don't know if it is it was a mistake. Yeah. No, well, not every one of mine were mistakes, but many of them were. Do you think that God sometimes drives you in certain ways? He can drive you in certain ways. He can give you direction. Um, part, part of what I look at when I'm making a decision is if I don't personally want to do it, then I really take serious that it's probably God talking to me. 
If I want to do something, then I'm not going to say God told me to do something. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard to decide on that. It really is. Trying to understand God's plan and his goals is probably one of the hardest things that we have to do. Uh, there will be many in the Christian world who will tell you that God doesn't have any that serious plan for you. Whatever you do is what you do, and I don't agree with that. I think we need to be seeking God for all of our plans and listening to him and making sure... First off, it doesn't contradict anything the Bible says, which most of our planning doesn't necessarily. But there have been many times when I have just made good plans without praying, without considering God, gone on my plans, and had God oppose them. And nothing's more difficult than when God opposes your plan. And you got this wonderful plan, and, and believe me, I'm a manager, I'm a, I'm a planner, I'm an organizer. It's easy for me to put, put together plans without God and watch him oppose them. So this is just one of those things. I read this. This is one of the things I've read at times when I'm making plans. I'm going, God, what was, what was it that you were trying to tell Paul? Now, were you just testing him to see if he was going to be obedient to something you had told him, or... Was he disobedient in going when you told him not to? And, you know, I would find it, it would be so nice if it just told us that. But, you know, one of the things that happens with God is, first off, he doesn't seem to do things the same way twice. You know, why would, he, why would he do that? So that we don't get into this is how God does things. When Jesus healed blind people, you know, one of them he just spoke, one he touched his eyes, one he spit in the guy's eyes, one he, one he spit in the ground and made mud pack for him, you know. Why did he do it differently for each person? Probably so that nobody would go around saying, this is, the, this is my healing for, Jesus is a, gave us the example for healing blind people, and this is how he did it, so this is how it's done. I think he did it on, different on purpose, because in my life, he keeps doing things differently. So that I don't get into the, okay, this is God, how you work. Because we as humans like to have things in a nice, neat box. You know, and one thing I have learned, if you try to put God into a nice, neat box, he jumps right out of the box and says, well, no, you're not going to box me up. Because he's infinite. He cannot be boxed. And he'll come up with new ideas, new ways of doing things. So we won't be, able to contra- you know, won't, won't be able to figure this out, but we do know that Paul is told that he's going to get in trouble when he gets to Jerusalem. And we're going to see another one that gives a very, very strong prophecy of it uh, when he gets to Antioch. And what happens is he does get arrested. And, you know, all things work together for good. He gets to go talk to, gets to, talk to uh, Caesar Nero eventually and gets his head chopped off. Uh, so was it the right move? I don't know. God, God used it. Uh, and he was able to lead many of the people in, in uh, Caesar's household to the Lord in the process. So was it God's plan? Ultimately, was this his best plan or his second plan that God used? We don't know. All we know is that God did great things from it. And this is one of the things I always have said. Even if we mess up we make the wrong decision god knew we were going to make that decision and already has a plan that incorporates our bad decision and it will work out for good all things work together for good not some not most not just the things i didn't mess up (laughs) all things so even when i'm totally disobedient and i totally mess up things from my perspective, God will make something good out of it. Now, again, not my good, but he will make something good out of it. Even when I totally mess up. And he will use it to teach me and grow me as well. So this is something that's important. And, and Paul in verse uh, 24 said, but none of these things move me. Okay, he goes, I keep getting told that I'm going to be arrested I'm going to have affliction. He goes, but none of these move me. He goes, neither count I my life dear to myself so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus 
to testify the gospel of grace of God. So again, this is what, we, what I was just saying. Paul's kind of saying, there's nothing new in what they're telling me. I don't, I don't count my life as anything. What stops us from sharing the gospel with most people is fear. Fear that they are going to uh, mis mistreat me, make fun of me, attack me, uh, be, be mean, ask me a question I don't know. Whatever it is that drives us to not share is fear. Fear that I'm not going to look right. I'm not going to be treated right. I'm not going to whatever. And Paul says, I don't even count my life worth anything. So if I get arrested and I get beat, I don't care. Now, most of us don't have that attitude toward God uh, or toward our life. I, I need it more. You know, and he says, I've, given, I've been given a ministry. I am to share Christ. And he has already determined that if he dies, he dies. And you know, it has been said, and this is very true, that while God has a plan for you, you are invincible. As long as God has something for you to do, you cannot die. Now, that doesn't mean you won't get hurt. It doesn't mean you won't have a lot of pain in your life. You know, you can do some really foolish things and suffer. But if God's got a plan for you, you will be left to be able to go forward with it. When God is ready for you to go home, you could be in the absolute safest place that you can even imagine. And if it's time for you to go home with God, you're going to go home. And this is something that can be very bold. And I don't know how many of you have been in places where there's danger. I've been in the combat zone of Boston. I've been in downtown New York. I've been in you know, the worst parts of Baltimore. And I have always felt safe when I've been out there sharing Christ with people. Just because I knew that that's what God wanted at that time. Now, would I have wanted to be there without God's call? Nope, there were some very dangerous places to go sometimes. Especially for a white guy. <laughs> you know, uh, in those neighborhoods. But we want to be very careful about this. If we're where God wants us to be, we will be safe. And when it's time to be done, it'll be done and God will use whatever we've done for his glory. We look at Elliot going and being to the Indian, Indians in South America. He lost his life going to the Indians. So that his giving his life allowed his wife and his children to go in and minister to the Indians and lead them to Christ at a, at a future time. You know, and we need to understand God has a plan, even when we don't see it. And here Paul's saying, I am not worried. God has given me a ministry to preach the gospel, and I'm, going to, and I'm going there. And he felt that he had to go to Jerusalem. He had a love for his people. He had a love for the Jewish people because they knew the truth and was rejecting it. And he just had this great heart to say, I've got to go to them. It, it, the attitude he had toward them is like many of us have toward our families. When we get saved, who's the ones we care about the most is our family. We want to see our family get to heaven with us. And they're the hardest ones for us to reach. Because usually they go, well, I know you. you know, I know how bad you were. I know, the, I know, you know all the things you did. Uh, one of the things that is hard, and I've said this before, when, when a young person grows up in a church and God calls them, if they stay in the same church, they have a big battle ahead of them. Because everybody remembers, well, you were the kid that used to play in the baptismal or get into the closets or cause the trouble, and they remember them as the kid who was growing up, not as the adult who's ready to serve God. And it is difficult, and this is what happens. When you go to talk to your family members, they remember you as the kid that got into trouble. They remember you as even the adult that got into trouble if you got saved in late years. And they're going, why, why should we believe you now? And Paul is going to, he says, I've got to get back to the Jewish people. And that is why he went to the Jewish people first all the time. He goes, 
I love the Jewish people. They know God's word. They didn't believe God's word completely, but they knew it. And he says in uh, verse 25, he says, And now behold, I know that, that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. This tells us that Paul understood what he was doing. All right? He knew that when he left, this was his last time to go. Now he's going to go to Rome and he's going to write, he's going to write the prison epistles as if he's coming back out. We read Ephesians and, and uh, Galatians and Colossians and Philippians and he goes, I'm hoping, to, I'm hoping to come see you. Even though he'd already said, I'm not going to see you. His hope was that somehow he was going to get out of this. But he is not expecting, when he's talking to them, he's not expecting to come back and see them again. Now, I don't know if he wanted to go other places, which is quite possible. Uh, he wanted to go to, to Rome. There's indications that he wanted to get all the way to, to Britain. Uh, he might have had a desire to go toward, China, toward in India because all of those areas were known. You know, so maybe he was never planning, you know, we don't know if he was saying, I'm never coming back at all, I'm going to go die, or I'm not coming back to Asia Minor. I've made three trips to Asia Minor, I'm not coming back again. Uh, and so I, you, won't, you all won't see me, because I'm going elsewhere. Or did he know he was going to, you know, be arrested and never released? Uh, again, one of those things we don't know. Um, and then he goes into verse 26. Wherefore I take you record this day that I am pure of the blood of all men. I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. You know, and this is quite a statement. Paul, being as bold as he was, says, I have not failed to teach, teach anybody. Now, I don't know that I can be that bold. <laughs> all right? And I'm the type of person that when I talk to somebody... I usually think about what I should have said about three hours after I'm done talking to them. Paul wasn't that kind of man. He was so bold. He was so upfront. Uh, he was kind of in their face many times and very much willing to, you know, speak very strongly. But he was also a Pharisee. That was the way the Pharisees were. You know, this is the way it is. You know, follow. And he says, I am pure of the blood. I am blameless of everybody's blood. I've, have, I've given the opportunity to share Christ with everybody that I've come across. I know that I'm not able to say that. And he goes, I have, I have not been timid in, in declaring to you all the counsel of God. And this is a key word, all the counsel of God. This is one of the reasons that I like exegetical teaching verse by verse book by you know book by book because the whole counsel of God is taught that way uh, I deal with the things I don't want to teach I deal with the things I want to teach if you sit under a pastor who is doing topical studies long enough you'll find out what they think is important and what they think is not important they'll avoid certain topics because God never leads them to teach on that topic and I have a problem with that because that's not the whole counsel of God and I've said under some of them have, some of them are on the same topic about every other topic. Some have four or five years worth of topics before they repeat. But it's important because every topic has to be covered. God has words about everything involved in our life. Now, he doesn't have exact direction for every single thing in our life, but he has principles for every part of our life. And it's very important that we get to know all of it. And it gets hard because we violate his principles all the time. You know, and they can be simple ones. You know, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and so much more as you see the day approaching. How many churches are starting to have less and less services every, every year? You know, it used to be that every church had a Sunday morning, Sunday night, and, and a midweek service, usually on Wednesday. Now, you're lucky for some of these churches just to have a Sunday morning service. And if you're like this church where we have lots of events going on, I can pick up any leadership magazine that tells me I have too much, 
too much teaching because I'm keeping everybody away from their families because I have Bible studies so often. And my attitude is that, well, you can't bring your kids with you to Bible study? You can't bring your kids with you to church? If you can't, then you've got a problem there. But you know, what do they substitute church with? Sports, activities, you know, uh, all these things, and all these things can be good. But then they get so busy that sports start eating into church. That song you sang today, I like. Excuses? <laughs> I haven't heard that song in ages. It was, fun. it was fun to hear that song, Excuses. I never heard it. Uh, because it really is. People look for excuses. People bounce around churches because they'll stay until the, church, until the pastor says something they don't like. Steps on their toes a little bit. Nope, can't go here anymore. That, that pastor is getting meddlesome. And they'll go to another church and stay there for a year or two until the pastor steps on their toes. And then they'll leave that church and go to another church and then stay there for, for a year or two until the pastor steps on their toes. You know, and I've told you all, I'm going to step on your toes, but most of the time I'm stepping on my own toes when I'm preaching and teaching because God speaks to me just as much as he does to you all. And I am not perfect by far. And I have lots of problems that God has to deal with me on. So, you know, he says, I've taught you the whole counsel of God. We go through Paul's epistles and the letters that he gave. And you know what? I am glad that the first century church wasn't a perfect church like people try to believe it was. Otherwise, we'd have no letters addressing all the problems of the church. And it's funny that they had the same problems that we have. You know, and get to deal with those same problems. And he says, I, I've covered everything with you. I have not shied away from the hard truths. And we need to be able to understand that all of this is going to happen. And Paul in verse 20 is talking to the leaders. Take heed therefore yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. You know, he's encouraging the pastors. Feed your flocks. You know, and, these, and then he's reminding them that the flock belongs to God, that God is the one who paid the price. And this is very important. Whether you're the pastor of a church, the father or mother in a family, we have the obligation to take care of God's people that he's put us over. And it's very important. Fathers are to care for their children that were a gift from God to them, to teach them the whole counsel of God. And it's been very interesting to watch the destruction of the family over the years. We started with the Industrial Revolution taking the father away from the family. It used to be the children hung out with their dad all day long, milking the cows, fixing the fences, uh, working on, working on, you know, Bailing hay, plowing the fields, learning hard work, learning from dad directly. The Industrial Revolution took dad out of the house. And then dad came back after a 10, 12, 13 hour day, so tired that he didn't spend any time with the kids. Then we move into World War II. Men go overseas to fight, women go move out of the home to, to the factories. And they didn't go back to take care of their kids. Now nobody's teaching the kids. Maybe babysitters, maybe, maybe the, the, the government preschools. And the kids have gotten worse and worse with every time we take and destroy the family. And now we're talking about destroying it even further in our, in our country, in our world right now. With transgenderism and I forget how many, how many different uh, sexes there are now. The last thing I heard was 18 of them. You know, and I'm going, no, there's two. God created male and female. He said so right at the beginning of the Bible. You know, there's not these fluid mixed and genders and, and, and all this stuff, which is going to get us in trouble as Christians if we agree with God. Because the world is changing. And not for the good. It's changing just as it did in past times. What we're experiencing is not new. You know, Nothing new under the sun. It's all been out there. We've already had one world government before. It was in the Tower of Babel under Nimrod. And we're headed back to the one world government again, which God said in Revelation would be the case. 
all of this transgenderism has always been, and the downfall of all the all these every nation and empire has been homosexuality and transgenderism, has been the downfall of every great nation and empire that has existed, and we're facing that in our world today. It's not new. And one of the things that irritates me when I hear people go, well. God has got to judge us because of this. Yes, he's got to judge us. And then they'll go on, well, this is so bad. This is so new. No. Rome fell for this. Greece fell for this. Egypt fell on this. Every great nation has fallen because of these final sins. Canaan was destroyed and annihilated by God by sending the Jewish people in because of all of their sexual perversions that they had that they created. And God said, you're not repenting. Now you're going to be destroyed. It is what leads to it, but this is not new. And we've got to quit thinking that we are so bad, we're so, you know, everything is so different in our generation. Everything is what has happened before. Now, lots of things are all combining across the world in a very different way. The scope of it seems to be bigger this time because of our communication and how small the world is becoming, but it is not new. And if you want to go back before Babel, you can go to the days of Noah where everybody did what was right in their own eyes and God destroyed them. And even though it doesn't define what was right in their own eyes, I'm going to say that homosexuality and transgenderism was part of their problems as well. Because that is what leads to final judgment from God. So this is not new. And it just brings us up to the fact that we are very close to the end days. I love that we are close to the end days. This is an exciting time to live. Jesus is coming soon, as we sung about this morning, and I love that. He is coming for his church soon. Now, even if it's another two or three hundred years, it's still a lot sooner than it was when, you know, 2,000 years ago. And I don't know that we can go 200 years you know, more to keep getting worse without a great revival. I'm praying that there'll be a revival. I'm not really expecting one because everything is falling in place. You know, we're out of one world currency basically right now. We're we're out of cashless society right now. We're at a, you know, a fallen world that's saying that we're, you know that good is bad and bad is good and all the things that the Bible tells us. So it's kind of an exciting time to live and say, God, are you coming today? God, are you taking us today? How much worse does it have to get before you take us? And I don't know the answer to that. All I know is things are bad enough they could be today. We might not make it home. And you guys have a short distance to go to get home. And you might not make it home. Which means I won't get very far down the street. And it's exciting to know that we can be in heaven. With the Father. At the marriage supper of the Lamb. While Satan is released on this world to do most of what he wants to do. And in the process, destroy, as Revelation, I, I've counted it up, 66% of the population of the world will be destroyed just in the numbers Revelation gives us. That's a lot of people that are going to die. And, you know, two out of every three people will die. Death will be the norm during the tribulation period. You know, and that is a scary thought. And all because God is trying to reach people and get their attention. To say, come to me. Come to me on this final opportunity. You know, and Paul is saying, I've given you the whole counsel of God. And this is important for us to understand that he says, take care of your flock. Don't be afraid to speak to them. Don't, give, don't be afraid to teach them the hard things. Verse 29 says, For I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Paul understood that enemies were going to come in. He dealt with enemies all the time. Remember, he's had to deal with the Judaizers primarily. And what were the Judaizers? Those were the people that would come into the church and say, Paul's message was a good message, but he didn't tell you the whole truth. This grace of God thing, it's really good. 
but you have to follow all these laws and bring them back into legalism. These were the kind of people Paul dealt with. And he says, once I leave, you're going to have to deal with these people coming in with bad doctrine that sound good. And we have churches all over the place that have this grace and. You know, it's the grace of God, but you've got to do all of this to, to be saved. It's God doing it, but you've got to prove that you deserve it. And then he says, even worse, and people will rise up within your own churches and deceive. In many ways, those are harder people to ferret out than the ones that come in from the outside. People are on their guard a little bit against them. But you know, I've seen this over and over where somebody starts teaching just a little off. Just a little bit off. And, bef- and then they get a lot of people following them, and then all of a sudden they get further and further and further off. Which is why I say in this church, I want everybody to be good Bereans. I want you to study God's scripture. I want you to look at whatever I say and say, does it match up to scripture? Because if it doesn't match scripture, I don't want you believing it. Even if I believed it, I don't want you believing if it doesn't match up to scripture. Now, I don't ever plan to teach people incorrectly. But you know what? Most of the people who, plan on, who fall into that don't plan on teaching incorrectly either. I'm sure there are some that are just foolish people, but there are many that just slightly believe something and then get deeper and deeper into understanding, you know, misunderstanding. And people just start following them because, well, they've always taught me good in the past, so what they're teaching must be good. We need to be very careful of that. Compare scriptures. Know what scripture says, because if anybody's teaching something that does not fit all of scripture, it's incorrect. And there are some very key things that are taught by lots of churches that I disagree with because they don't match scripture all the way across the board. And I go, and I can't believe that. I just cannot believe something that violates scripture someplace else. And we've covered it various, various times in, in various things. And I'll tell you, if you don't want to believe what I believe, that's fine. If you want to believe the majority, that's fine. You know, you're in good company. I just don't believe them. You know, and this is something that we need to be able to understand. And what I've told you all is be able to defend what you believe. You know, if you disagree with me, great, but be able to say, this is why I believe what I believe. Because I can darn well tell you why I believe what I believe. I'll defend what I believe. Just know, if you disagree with me, great. You know, when we get to heaven, you'll find out I'm right. I say that very tongue-in-cheek because I could just as easily find out I was wrong. But I definitely believe that I'm right, otherwise I wouldn't teach it. But if I have somebody that can give me what they believe and, I can, and it can be defended well enough, I'll have to look at what I believe and say, what's going on? And have to go to God and say, God, what is true? And over the years, I have done that on more than one occasion. <laughs> Gone to God and say, God, I need help. This is what I've always believed. This is what this person's teaching. I need to know how all of this works together. And we need to be very careful. And I've said this all the time. Do not bring your doctrine into your interpretation of the scriptures. You know, it's an amazing thing when I talk to hyper-Calvinists who believe that, you know, in predestination so badly that they go, nobody can be saved. And I go, well, what do you do with the whosoever? You know, whosoever will. You know, John 3.16, that whoever believes on the name, you know, on Christ shall be saved. And, they, and you know what they'll answer you? It's whosoever and is called. And I'm going, you can't put your doctrine into a verse. If the verse does not support your doctrine, then you have to analyze your doctrine. Because something's wrong. Either the verse is wrong or your doctrine is wrong. And if the verse, the verse is not going to be wrong. So if you find lots of verses that are contrary to your doctrine, then you have to adapt your doctrine to the word of God. And... You know, and it's tough because God definitely says that he predestinates us and he has foreknowledge and a whole lot of things. We have to deal with those, those verses as well. But he also says that we have a choice in the matter. So we need to be able to look at these things and say, God, I need answers. I want answers. And he's warning them. 
enemies will come into the church. And the sad thing in our day and age, within the church, so-called Christian church, we have enemies in more than half the church right now that are preaching doctrines that are of man and not of the Bible. Because our seminaries have been so polluted that they do not believe the word of God anymore. Now, I don't call them Christian churches, but they call themselves Christian churches, and they're making life difficult for those of us that are Christian Bible-believing churches. And say, well, you know, uh, I don't know how you guys can believe in a six-day creation because, you know, look at all this science and look at all these, how it contradicts and all this other stuff. And it's like, well, you know what? It's a six-day creation. God created the heavens and the earth because science cannot support evolution. And it's very important. And they'll come along, well, you can't really believe that this Jesus guy was the son of God born of a virgin. Well, what are you, you're calling yourselves Christians, Christ followers, and you don't believe that he was a virgin born son of God, died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. What are you, what basis are you calling yourself a Christian? And there are so many churches out there that do not believe the word of God. We need to be, and they're going to make life difficult. The more that they will fall away, the harder it will be on us as, as Christians when we stand firm on the word of God. Because, well, why, why are you holding on to this book when all these other groups out there have no problem with it? Well, if they want to be judged by God and probably not saved and going to hell, that's between them and God. But I'm going to hold on to his word. I'm going to follow his word, and I'm going to preach his word, and I'm going to teach his word, and I'm going to stand with his word. And if it's just like Paul, if it sends me to prison, which I believe that it will, then I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to testify in court for what God says and give God's statement on it and be sent to re-education camps in America. It's on the horizon. We need to prepare. And I don't, I'm really thinking that it's soon because God has put it on my heart each week to mention this whole thing of be prepared. Be prepared for what's coming. If, because the worst thing to happen is to be caught unprepared. You know, if you're prepared for a storm, it's not as big a deal when your lights go out because you, you had your candle supply and your, and your batteries and your flashlights and your, your battery-operated radio. But if you weren't prepared, you go through a really hard time. When I lived in hurricane area, one of the warnings was get your water ready because the hurricane is going to flood the reservoirs and pollute the reservoirs. So make sure that you have your your water ready and your windows taped up and your batteries and you got ready for it. When you lived in the North Country, they go, there's going to be a blizzard. Get your, get your you know, week's worth of food in, in place. Get your, get your water. Get, you know, you know, get ready for what's coming. We as Christians have to be ready for what is coming. And it is going to be persecution. America has been very fortunate for 300 years. We have had no persecution and as Christians. Historically, 300 years is about the maximum time without persecution. If you look at Christian history, every 100 to 300 years there's been persecution. You look at Jewish history, same thing. You know, 100 to 300 years was between persecutions. We need to get ourselves ready because it's coming. Historically, it's coming. Biblically, it's coming. Jesus said they hated me. They're going to hate you. We need to be ready to listen to God and be ready to walk with him. Verse 31, Therefore watch and remember, and by the space of three years, how I cease not to warn you night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. You know, Paul said, I've been, for this last three years, this last trip, three years, he was out on mission. And he says, I've been warning you, night and day, every opportunity, I've been warning you. He says, now I commend you to God. I commend you to God's grace. He goes, I'm not coming back, so now you are in his hands. You know, and he's warning them, you know, you can't just expect my letters, you can't expect me to be showing up to fix your problems. It says it's you and God fixing these problems. 
and we need to be able to understand that it's so easy to lean on a leader. Oh, this person's always been here. Well, you know what? We can't lean on a leader because God could take that leader out through sickness and death or just move them on. You know, remember, we looked at Philip when he went to see the, un the Ethiopian eunuch. God took him from a thriving, growing church. says, go preach to this, you know, go to this road and talk to the person I want you to, and sent him to another place. We're told he didn't go back to where he started from. You know how hard it is to leave something that's successful? You know, God, uh, this is going really good. You and I are doing a really good job here. This, the church is growing. People are getting saved. People are growing. And God says, I want you someplace else. If the people are growing, it should still go on because you can't be the center of what they need. They need to be able to continue themselves, which is why I'm growing people here that can do Bible studies. And we're watching people take over some Bible studies and leadership positions so that others can take over. I'm not planning on going anywhere, but you know what? God could take me out. He could also move me out. Even though I'm not expecting to move out, he could do so. And we need to make sure that I'm not the center of what, what's going on in this church. Right now, I've got the privilege of being the one that preaches. I'm the one privilege to be the voice on the internet. I'm the privilege of watching you all grow. But you cannot be dependent upon me. And I'm not doing, saying this because I'm planning to leave. Don't get me wrong. I'm just the warning that Paul's given. We're to be developed in the grace of God. Because God is the one that we should be looking at. Not, in, not a man, not a person. And I've seen churches that have been very good churches that have been developed around a single leader. And it's, they've suffered when that leader has passed away because everything was focused on that leader and not so much God. Now, most of them survived if, they, if those leaders, at least in the ones that I know that had good leaders that really were facing God, but the, a lot of people suffered because they were followers of the man and not God as much. And we need to make sure we're following God. And this is what Paul's saying. I'm putting you guys into God's hands. It's his grace that's going to keep it going. Paul didn't want a bunch of churches that were his church. Now, he knew that he was the pastor. He was the church planner. He was their pastor, and he knew that he was, but he also didn't want them saying, well, when Paul dies, this whole church is going to fall apart because it was his church. He's saying, I'm going to leave, and God's going to be the one that's protecting these churches because they're his churches, his body. And then uh, verse 33, I have not coveted any man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, you, you yourselves know how these hands have ministered unto my necessities and for them that were with me. Paul's saying, I didn't, I didn't want you to give me everything. He goes, I worked hard. We know that he worked as a tent maker in Corinth, and we, he, you know, he created his own income. He was a bivocational evangelist. He did work, and then he, and he preached. He did not, now, and he told one church, he goes, I had the right to ask you to pay for me. You had a church big enough to pay for me. He goes, but I worked with my own hands. I wasn't asking anybody else to pay for my needs. Now, having him say that does not mean it was wrong for a pastor to be paid, or for the, the leader to be paid. There were times when he was paid. But he's saying, I also know how to work. And this is very important. You know, the laborer is worthy of their hire. So if you have a pastor who's working full time and ministering, teaching, visiting, doing all the things he needs to do, they are fully worthy of a good income. If the church is big enough to give them a good income, if not, then they do the best they can with, with what they have. You know, I find it sometimes very difficult, you know, because I have two jobs, two full-time jobs. And it's an amazing thing because, you know, a bivocational pastor is technically a part-time pastor usually. And if they're really a true pastor, there's no such thing as being a part-time pastor. If you are caring for your flock, you are not a part-time pass, you know, part-time with them. 
because there are needs that need to be taken care of. And we need to be able to understand Paul saying, not saying that, that they don't deserve to be paid. He's just reminding the Ephesians. Now remember, he's talking to the Ephesians. He goes, I did not take from you. I worked. Now there's other churches he couldn't have been able to say that to because they paid him and he worked from morning till evening as a pastor and a teacher. But with the Ephesians, he says, I worked. I worked to, for my living, and you know how I did that. And I find it very interesting. He says, I didn't covet any man's material materials. Now, covet is a really strong word. That's to desire something that belongs to somebody else. And, you know, it's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. And it's really the last one that catches everything. Because people will go, well, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't taken God's name in vain. Uh, you know, I haven't put any other idols in front, in, before me. And, you know, and, and most of those they already have, and they're, 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 they're too arrogant to accept it. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't, I haven't committed adultery. But, you know, coveting is so easy to do. You know, your best friend gets a brand new car. God, why did they get a car, you know, such a nice car? You know, your car works just fine. It gets you from point A to point B. It hasn't been in the shop and it's doing, doing fine, but they have all the new bells and whistles and all of a sudden you want it. We have an entire industry out there designed to make us covet. It's called advertising. You know, they have all these big people that tell us that we need things that we never even knew that we needed. You know, and I've shared with you, I, I love... I love these things that they, sh they, they share you with. It's so easy to flip an omelet that you have to have an omelet pan that you flip the whole pan rather than the omelet. You know, and never knew that it was that difficult to flip an omelet until they told me that it was really difficult. You know, uh, you know still, don't, still don't have one of those pans and never will have one of those pans because I don't think it's that hard to flip an omelet. But you understand what I'm saying. They, they, they have this industry to tell us how much we need. Your car works perfectly fine, but you need a, you need a car that will stop, the, stop you from having a crash and warn you that somebody's in the lane next to you and, and drive by itself and park by itself and you know, have the newest stereo and all this other stuff. And there's nothing wrong with those things necessarily. But do we need all of that stuff? You know, do we need to buy and go into debt for things that we don't need? And this is what Paul's saying. I didn't covet anything. He said, I've learned to be content with what I had, with much and with little. That is a statement of somebody who knows how to not covet. Because you cannot be content with little if you're coveting what others have. You know, you're looking at, well, God, why don't I have that? Why don't I have, you know, God, I serve you more than they do. Why don't I have? Or I want that gift. I want that Yeah, that's a big one, too. I want that person's gift, spiritual gift. And uh, in verse 35, and I have shown you all things, how so laboring you ought to support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Now this is something that's very interesting. You cannot find that statement in any of the gospels, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now Jesus indicated things like that, so people go, well, Paul's making something up. Well, you know what? There's two answers to this. One could be very simple. Jesus told Paul directly this because Paul spoke with Jesus on, you know, at least on the road to Damascus and he was told my grace is sufficient to you, for you. There's been times when he wrote things that God said. The other thing that is very clear is John said that everything that Jesus said and did was not recorded in the Gospels. And if it had, we would not be able to carry our Bible around. Can you imagine if everything that Jesus had said for three years was recorded? And everything he did was recorded? How big our Bible would be? And this is something that's very important. Just because the Bible doesn't speak directly on a topic does not mean it doesn't touch a topic. All right? The, the Bible is not a science book, but it talks a lot about scientific things. And, you know, it is not, you know, a how-to guide, even though it gets us, gives us principles. 
So just be aware that he says that Jesus said this. He was either that Jesus spoke directly to him or he was quoting something that didn't actually get put into a gospel writing. Either one of them is very possible. So you'll hear critics say, well, this isn't in the Bible. It can't be true. Now, well, it's in the Bible. I mean, it's not in the gospel, so it can't be true. Don't buy into that. Don't let these hyper-educated people with long initials at the end of their name tell you how stupid they are. <laughs> well, you can let them tell you all you want, but don't believe them just because they have a whole bunch of initials at the end of their name. Even if they claim to be Christians teaching at Christian universities. Why do pastors not believe that the Word of God is the Word of God? Because so many of their professors with doctorates and all this stuff have told them that these things are in there and they're not true. So I'm telling you, you're going to find pastors that will tell you this is not, not spoken and not true. You're going to find Bible teachers and Bible colleges telling you that this is not true. There's all kinds of good answers as to why it's not in the gospel. So just don't accept them for what they say. You know, they have somebody that told them what to think and they agreed with them and they wrote, they wrote a thesis on it and now they have a doctorate that says they know something. Yeah. And the result of all of this, all of this uh, study was, and when he had spoken, they knelt down and prayed with all of them, and they wept with Paul and fell on his neck. This was a sad meeting for them. And I love that the resulting action was they ended in prayer. They ended in prayer, and verse 8, sorrowing most of all for the words that he spoke, that they should not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This was a sad meeting for them. Paul said, I'm not going to be back again. He's visited them three times on his three trips. And he says, I'm not coming back again. And again, I'm not sure if he was meaning that I'm going to be killed, I know I'm going to die, or if he had plans to go other places. Paul knew there was a whole lot of the world yet to hear the gospel message. And he was called to go to the Gentiles. So I think maybe he was thinking, well, I'm going to end up in, in Britain. I'm going to end up elsewhere. I'm not coming back to Asia Minor. I've done, it. I've done enough trips here. He had all of Europe to go to. He had all of, all of uh, Britain to go to. Not that he ever made it. But in his mind, I, I think he was thinking, I've got a lot more places to go. I can't, I can't come back here again because I've got, some, I've got other places to go. There's a whole world out there that needs to hear the gospel of God. And he went out. For us, are we ready to preach the gospel to those around us? Are we ready to share what God has for us to share? We need to get bolder with the gospel message. We're not all evangelists, we're not all pastors, we're not all teachers, but all of us are called to share the gospel of Christ with people. And that is very important for us. Many are good at it. I, I sometimes sit in awe of a, in the presence of a true evangelist and just watch them share the gospel. I mean, I, I have gone out to eat with evangelists and they have shared the gospel with 20 or 30 people in, in one small restaurant. If I had done it, I would have sounded obnoxious and they didn't sound obnoxious in the way they did it. It just flowed and, and worked for them. You know, but we do need to open our mouth and share the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. Tell them that they need Jesus and live the life of a Christian so that we're not living in hypocrisy. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for all that you've done. Lord, help us all to be as bold as Paul in our, in our speaking and lifting your name up. Lord, help us to keep the whole counsel of God always. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.